The annual TCS New York City Marathon is coming up on November 4th, and I ought to know because I am running it, and I hope I'm ready. If you asked me when I was in high school if I'd ever run a marathon, I'd have told you heck no. But marathons and other endurance races have just exploded in popularity in recent years. Although it has slowed recently, road races saw a 300% increase in the number of finishers from 1990 to 2013. On today's podcast, we found out the latest and greatest news about marathons, endurance training, and equipment. First, we talked to Christine Burke, Vice President of Runner Products and Services for New York Roadrunners, about what's new in the world of marathons, and particularly big ones like NYC. Then, Kevin and I headed out on a field trip to Staten Island to meet with the brilliant team behind the New York Sports Science Lab, which uses a suite of tests and downright crazy machines to train some of the world's most elite athletes. While we were there, Kevin got a VO2 max assessment and I got to simulate running at the top of Mount Everest, which is really hard, y'all. Also on this episode, we hear about field editor James Lynch's latest cycling exploits and test out beer that's specifically made for sports recovery. As long as my legs hold out, I'm your host, Jacqueline Detweiler, and you're listening to the most useful podcast ever. So on the podcast today, we have Christine Burke, who is the vice president of Runner Products and Services with New York Roadrunners, which runs a lot of races here in New York City. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much. And one of the races they run is the New York Marathon, which is a very exciting race that I am currently training for. And Eleanor's here as well. How did this relationship happen? How did you end up So I'm working on our PM family section of the magazine, which we run every month. And one of our editors, Peter Martin, wanted to do a segment about the upcoming marathon in our November issue because it's timely. And he wanted to look into tech behind the marathon because I think in the years since marathons have started, we've gotten a little more technologically savvy. And he was curious to see if there's anything new this year. And it turns out there is. So yeah, where is tech used the most? I mean, is it on the course? Is it in the expo? Like what kinds of things are the most exciting? Yeah. So we use tech in a lot of different ways. New York Roadrunners was one of the first organizations to use electronic computerized race scoring. And so we have a really sophisticated race scoring team that tracks every mile of the course where we record the splits. And those are sent to a mobile app. So our partner, TCS, it's a TCS New York City Marathon, has developed a really sophisticated tracking app for all 50,000 plus runners. And in combination between the app and the race scoring software, we're able to let spectators of the race know where their runners are on the course at any given time. I've actually used that before to find people, and it is so cool. It's really pretty accurate. Yeah. So it's not a GPS device where you use an algorithm to calculate how quickly somebody is progressing from mile to mile, but it gives you a really good sense of when you're going to see your runner during any given mile of the course, and it is a really good predictor of when your runner is going to finish the race. In your role at Roadrunners, what else do you do? Like what kinds of runner products and services are there? Yeah. So my role gives people the opportunity to run and makes running a better experience for them. So one of the new products that we've developed this year in 2018, launched in January, is virtual racing. Okay, And so this is a new technological product that we have developed in partnership with Strava, which enables runners to race with us in a race anywhere in the world. And for the first time, we announced a few months ago that we are going to give a small group of runners the opportunity to run the TCS New York City Marathon as a virtual race. 
And so we have 500 runners who are registered who are going to run a marathon distance with us sometime between November 1st and the actual date of the race, which is November 4th. We partnered with Strava, who is a GPS tracking software, and we give runners the opportunity to run those 26 miles anywhere in the world. We're encouraging runners of the 500 who are near each other geographically to perhaps do the race together Oh, that's cool. um, to build some sort of community. We have a number of runners who are doing it in Florida, for example, and we've given them a platform to connect online and some of them are coordinating running the race together. Is it mostly domestic people just in different cities or is it international too? No, we have just under 30% of the runners are international. Oh, wow. So there are runners who are doing this from all over the world. We've created this product where they can push themselves over a period of time and actually compete both with other people around the world as well as with themselves to see how they can improve their performance. Hmm. What do you think is the most exciting thing for people to check out if they are in New York City for the expo this year? Personally, the area of the expo that I find the most interesting is the running lab. Okay. And so we have a stage that is set up and goes all day, every day. And we have course strategy sessions that happen on the hour where our New York Roadrunner coaches will give specific course information and recommendations on how to run the hills or when to push Mm -hmm. or when not to push or how the water stations are set up. And then we have info areas set up within the running lab that will provide you with your predicted finish time, for example. So our partner TCS has worked with us to create a race predictor and you provide it with inputs and it will share with you what it expects your finish time to be within a range. And we evaluate after the fact Mm -hmm. how accurate it is. It's pretty remarkable how accurate the predictions are that this race predictor provides. That's very cool. So that all can be found inside the NYR running lab at the expo. Okay. So do you have any tips for anybody in terms of products or services or anything that they should try? I mean, this is the most useful podcast ever. So we try to give people concrete information Mm -hmm. about things they want to do. If they want to try to run their first marathon, do you have any recs? Yeah, I think the starting point is in finding good footwear to wear when training for a marathon. You don't want to be making that decision at the expo. You want to be making that decision now, eight, nine, ten weeks out from the race. And Mm -hmm. our partner, New Balance, has a great offering where they let you test run their running shoes. So here in New York City, as well as at their other stores around the world, you can go in and check out a pair of shoes. Literally, you hand over your license, they hand you a pair of shoes, and you take those shoes out on the road. And that gives you the ability to try shoes that are neutral or stability shoes or cushion shoes or lightweight racers to figure out what are the right shoes for you. Right. And this is the point in the training cycle that you should be narrowing in on what shoes you're going to wear on race day. Okay. See, that's good to know yeah, for me. Yeah, that's good to know. I, run, I, have like, I have like three different pairs that I alternate between, so I guess I should decide. How many marathons have you run? I have run 25 oh marathons. God, that's a lot of marathons. That's a lot of marathons. I started when I was quite young, but I've run a lot of marathons. Wow. Like how many a year? The most I've run in a year is three, and I have three children, so I took a number of years off for 
having those children, but three a year is my max. Wow. Do you have a favorite course? New York City Mm. is by far my favorite. (laughs) So I've run New York City nine times. It was my very first marathon back in 1993. I think the tour that you get of New York City is unlike any other experience you can have. The Verrazano Bridge is only closed down one time a year, and it's for this race. They don't have a pedestrian pathway, so there's no other opportunity to run across the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. And the city celebrates this race day in a way that is really magical. Can people watch it on TV? They can. So it is offered on ABC locally and ESPN nationally. Okay. Great. So then if you're a listener and you're not in New York City, as probably a lot of our listeners are, check it out on ESPN. So, well, cool. Well, thank you for stopping by. And um, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Yeah. And good luck to everyone who's running the marathon. Including Jackie. Yeah. Good luck to you Uh, on November 4th. We'll be out there cheering for you. Thank you. Yeah. Yell my name if you see me. (laughs) (laughs) We are here at the New York Sports Science Lab on Staten Island. And who are we here with? So my name is Victor Lanchuk, I'm from Argentina, and I'm one of the sports scientists and strength and conditioning coaches of the New York Sports Science Lab. And we are also with Juan. How are you doing? My name is Juan Delgado. I'm the head sports scientist here in the New York Sports Science Lab. I'm from Mexico. And um, one of the biggest things that we do here with Victor and myself is we analyze uh, the athletes and when we do the global assessment. Is this just like pro athletes? Because this is some serious equipment that's in here. Is it pro athletes, amateurs? Like no, who? it's not just pro athletes. Pro athletes is one of the populations that we have, but we work with kids from seven years old all the way to pro athletes or 60 years old, weekend warriors. Everybody has their right and the privilege of doing things like this, so why not doing it, right? Cool. How many pieces of equipment do you have here? A lot. A lot. <laughs> uh, a lot of pieces of equipment. So just to give you an idea of how this works with all the technology, we created something called a global assessment. The global assessment basically utilizes about 10 different technologies that all validated with each other, mm-hmm. and they all analyze different aspects from your mechanics, from how you walk, how you move, how much weight you put on one leg versus the other, to treat emotional analysis, see how your mechanics are, and how that changes. So we compare with each other, like left and right, and see if there's any, any imbalance. So we all have different imbalances in different situations, right? So what we do is we take this global assessment and we tailor make your protocol Mm -hmm. just for you. Mm -hmm. And for the case of runners, what we Mm -hmm. look is into uh, knowing their cardiovascular system, how efficient are they when they run, and how can we help them to prevent injuries. That's basically the way that we incorporate our equipment Mm -hmm. into their program and their running strategy, no? So over here is where we do most of the assessment okay. in this section of the lab. This is a force plate for runners specifically. What we can do is to see how much they can propel themselves every time that they push the ground to the floor. No? That's and I've the... heard that's like the big measure of how fast we're running. Exactly, oh, exactly. Okay. So that is going to change the stride length. As you can see, we have two different force plates, no? So when they do a counter-movement jump over there, that is basically you go down and then you use your tendons and muscles to propel yourself quick up, we can see which side is doing more or less. Oh, so you can actually see when the two legs are providing different amounts of force. Exactly, exactly. So with runners, what we want to see basically is that the stride length in one leg is as even as possible with the other one. And that is gonna prevent some injuries because if one stride length is longer, the deceleration in the other side is gonna be more. 
-hmm. Now, this is going to be decelerating more, but doing less to propel themselves. On the other side, it's going to be accelerating more, and this is going to create an imbalance, no? and most of the injuries with runners are overuse injuries. So if we can see which one is doing more or less, we can have a program to improve that imbalance. Cool. So what else you got? This is a little different. This is not for runner. This is for a, a boxer, but it's the same principle. And principle in terms of electromyography is how this muscle in this case is a front from the shoulder and it actually acts more than the left. It tells me exactly what muscles are working properly and which ones are not. Uh -huh. right? And as an indicator for the trainers to see you know what, I need to work on the activation of this. In a runner's case, for example, a big problem that they don't activate the gluteus medius. Mm -hmm. In a lot of sports, whether it's football, runner backs, they don't activate those muscles. So simple, they're like the size of three of my fingers. Mm -hmm. They're right next to your hip. So when you don't activate them properly and I see that I can work on that. We should say for listeners that what they were showing us during this whole time is a, a video of a boxer, but also data points for several muscle groups and then like a skeletal reconstruction of how they're moving. Uh, yeah. So they're really building like a full picture of how, yeah. how your body's working together. After the assessment, we can know exactly what kind of program or training they should follow in order to improve the imbalances, no? Okay. And just to add on to that, when we do the assessment, that assessment actually involves a physical therapy evaluation, orthopedic evaluation, just to see if there's that discrepancy between left and right in terms of femur length, for example, tibia length, whatever is necessary to see if you have certain functionality issues that will prevent us from doing the assessment completely. Right. Uh, so just adding to that. So for that, we don't really do that much, like how we can lengthen your femur. Yeah. But we can modify the assessment accordingly. What? So then what happens after this? Then you diagnose somebody and then... So once we see there's something going on or we've had the assessment completed, then we see what imbalances you have. And we do a protocol specifically for you. Because you're not the same as me, uh -huh. or you're not the same as Victor, Victor's not the same as me. We need different things, right? We have different needs in terms of a physical activity, mm -hmm. and we tailor and make it to that. Cool. Well, should we go see some more stuff? Yeah. So this is one of my favorites. This is wild. What is this? Yes, it's an isokinetic dynamometer. It's basically a machine that we use to measure power. So basically what we do, depending on the sport, we pick the joint. Depending on the movement, we can also decide which section of your body we are going to analyze. Okay. But in the case of runners, we do care a lot about the muscles of the leg. In this case, it's the knee, no? The knee is the one that is involved. So basically, we compare how strong is the quadriceps versus the hamstring, uh -huh. yes? We compare left to right, and with that information, we have even more data to develop the program for you. So in order to have the best information, we need to compare both legs. So you have four muscles in the quadriceps. Vastus uh -huh. no? medialis, intermedius, lateralis, rectus femoris. On the hamstring, we have the two semis and the bicep femoris. So it's four versus three. And that's why you can see that the quadriceps, the strength that you can do on the quadriceps is greater than the strength that you can do on the hamstring, which is normal. Uh -huh. it's, it's perfectly normal. The ratio that we are looking is to have it above 0.6. And that will mean that is the hamstring is 60% as strong as the quadriceps. Okay, so now we're next door and we're looking at the cardiovascular stuff. There's two machines that we're gonna try? Yes, so first we are gonna measure your volume of oxygen consumption, maximum volume of oxygen consumption. VO2 max, most of the people know it like that. So it's I've heard that before. You heard of that before? Okay, excellent. So it's basically how much oxygen you can use 
when you are training at the maximum that you can perform. Just you, because different people can reach different VO2 max, no? But it's mainly genetical, especially if you are trained in the sport. In this case, I want to trick you a little bit to see, <laughs> yes, we are not gonna do it running, we are gonna do it on the bicycle. Oh, just okay. to see how that will happen if you are untrained in the sport. There is always a 15 to 20% that you can still improve if you never train in that sport. But if you're already training that and you're doing the right training, the right aerobic program, there is not that much that we can do to improve the VO2 max. But during that test, we can also see your anaerobic threshold. That is the point where you move from being aerobic to anaerobic. And we do it for two different purposes. First, to give you the information so you know at which intensity you have to train in order to delay that moment. So if it's happening later, it means that you can go faster and still be aerobic. Can you just explain for our listener what the difference between aerobic and anaerobic is? Yes, of course. So basically, anaerobic, you're using more carbohydrates. Yes, aerobic is more fat. There is a limited storage of carbohydrates that you have in your body. It's mainly 400 grams that you can have in your body. And if you're doing a marathon, you're gonna basically burn it out, okay. right? Yep. yep. So what we want to do is to stay aerobic because there is never a moment where you are only using the aerobic energy system. At some point, you are using different percentages of each. Uh -huh. So the more we are on the aerobic phase of intensity in this case, the more you can last in the race. Okay. So that's basically the difference, aerobic and aerobic. Yeah, pretty much. Just think about it when you're doing a marathon after they finish, they can barely move, right? Their legs are all like noodles, this basically. Is me. <laughs> so that's what people know as lactic acid kicking in, which basically is incorrect. Lactic is actually a good thing, and we're talking about lactate threshold. Uh -huh. uh, that's when the lactate starts activating based on that, right? And then our phase. But lactic is actually good in certain spaces for you, or certain mm -hmm. phases, because actually is going to make the muscles soothe a little bit. The problem is afterwards because people don't recover from that. Uh -huh. So when your threshold is a little low, that means you're going to get into that in an aerobic phase faster, you're going to get tired faster. Uh -huh. Your muscles aren't going to be responding as fast as you would do if you're to mask is high. Uh -huh. And your lactic threshold is also high. What should people do to recover afterward if they're going to? Ah, that we're going to be doing afterwards because we're going to show you a little bit of the things that we do for recovery. We put a lot of emphasis on it. Okay. Because we believe that it's not about training hard, it's about training smart. Uh -huh. So training smart means you have a very good ratio between workload of training and recovery, whether it's a compression massage, cryotherapy, just basically doing foam rolling exercises, stuff like that, dynamic warm-up, dynamic recovery, right. many different things you can do. Okay. So we're going to make Kevin do the VO2 max test, that's yes. what I'm yeah. excited about. And then what's the other thing we're going to try after that? And is it harder or easier than what I'm <laughs> That's what I want to know. Oh, not fair. Oh, the VO2 max test is definitely the hardest thing <laughs> that we can do. Don't scare them. <laughs> but the good thing is that you can also plan your race based on the hurry that you have just before the threshold. So if you know that you can perform at 140 heartbeats per minute, you stay in that zone and you're going to be able to last longer than if oh, you cross. I didn't know that. You're gonna get, you should get a heart rate, a heart rate detector. Rate. I always see runners we got it, we got checking it. theirs. I don't think I them. Well, I see like runners doing races check their watches all the time, and I always thought they were just checking pace, but no, it's good to no, know that's... Oh, okay. So huh. basically, well, holding my hands right now is that. It's a monitor, a heart rate monitor. So I'm going to ask you to put that right here underneath your sternum, right in this area. And we're going to wet it a little bit. Wet it a little bit, and um, that's it. 
Okay, can you explain the second test? And then I'll put this okay. down. Oh, yeah, yeah. Put that on. Okay. Yeah, after the training, basically what we're going to be doing is, it's not a test per se, well actually it's a test because we're going to be seeing also the heart rate and see how your heart rate and your uh, oxygen saturation changes as we change altitude. I have books that you know what it is, so yes. yeah, it's yeah. low oxygen in your blood, right? So mm. what happens is as you go up higher, the chances of getting hypoxia are higher, mm -hmm. obviously, because the oxygen amount on the air, it's less. If you're in the Everest, for example, uh, like really high, that's why people wear masks with oxygen tanks because the oxygen amount should be 21% in the, in the atmosphere. It's way lower. Right. So what we're going to be doing with you is we're going to lower that oxygen. We're going to utilize a mask you're going to put on your I'm face. Getting the oxygen. <laughs> That's one of the reasons why I'm going to ask you to wear another one like this because okay. I have to be monitoring your heart rate to see if you don't go to your maximum heart rate because then your heart is going to be uh, explode to make sure they don't problem. kill you. <laughs> no, we are going to do it in two sections once without the mask, uh -huh. and one with, yes, one with. with sea level, mm -hmm. not, that's where we are at the moment, okay. and then we are going to do it with the mask, and you're going to see that the going at the same pace how your heart rate behaves differently, you know? Uh, and, and also on that machine, we can change the weight that, or your weight. So if you want to not have too much strength and straining on your lower body, like knees or anything like that, I can modify the weight on up to like 8, 20%. So mm -hmm. if you were 100 pounds, I can make you weight 20 only. So that's excellent wow. for rehabilitation and it's excellent for training like that, so uh -huh. you don't burn out. Right. But since we're going to be checking that threshold, we don't do that. <laughs> we don't do that for you. But we're we are going to do it in that treadmill, so you get the experience of being in the air, because basically that's what it does. It blows up with air, yes, the uh -huh. pressure gets greater, and therefore you feel like you are in the air. Oh, that sounds really fun. All right, well, let's try these, yeah. and then we will give our, we'll, we'll tell everybody what it was like. Okay. We're recording if you want to Okay. So what we just did, you did the VO2 max test, and how yeah, was that? Yeah, it was, so the way it worked, and correct me if I'm saying this wrong, but so he started me out at like a target amount of energy or power. It's in watts. Watts. It's watts. And then it goes up by 15 watts every minute. So I think I did 17 minutes. How many intervals did I do? So you did 17 minutes total, yes. Yeah. So, so 17 intervals of 15 watts. Increase. Increments. So you have to go faster and faster and faster each time. So what do you actually figure out from watching me do that? So in your case, we were able to find out that you are at a superior Kevin so, Kevin so ranking <laughs> for VO2 max on the bike. What? Is that as milder as he over there? Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's very, very big. Um, so that's awesome. So what can he do with that information? So with that information, we know that you're almost at the peak of your VO2 max, so it would be pointless to train to improve it. Most of the time, untrained people can improve their VO2 max by 15%. So we can say that with your training experience, you're already at that peak and that God gave you another 5% extra above everybody else. So that's why you are at that superior state of VO2 max, no? And so then when I go run like my next race, how does that help me so strategize? You will never run at that pace in your race unless you are at the end and you're pushing to the limit. So the VO2 max is not basically something that you are going to utilize. In your case, because you are at that top, of the ranking, it's more important to know where your threshold is, where the anaerobic threshold is, right? So it's basically when you move from aerobic to anaerobic. So if we can keep you during the race at the aerobic stage, you can last longer, no? So if we delay the threshold, it will mean that you go faster, but you're still aerobic. So that will be the training. In your case, it happens to be at 127 beats per minute. 
and that is using the bicycle. When we use the bicycle, you're not using your ankles, you're not using the Achilles tendon, and for runners, the Achilles tendon is definitely what is gonna push you to a different level, no? The stretch shortening cycle is gonna stretch some energy in the tendon, and then it's gonna help you out, so the calf muscle, the gastrocnemius and soleus is doing less. That's basically what happens okay. when you... So if I were doing a bike race in this case, I'd want to try and stay under 127 heart rate for most of the race, and then at the end, get over it. Exactly. Above it. And then for like a running race, it's probably going to be higher because I've run regularly. So my training is probably such that that transition is at a higher heart rate. In right, running. right, right. And for training, you want to train just above the threshold. Okay. And that heart rate is not going to change. The pace that you're having is going to change. So you get better, but you continue using the same 127 to 130, but you're going to go faster. Your pace is going to be It's going to speed up. Okay, so what did you do, Jackie? Because you were in like a crazy machine. I was machine. in this machine. What is the name of this machine? But uh, anti-gravity treadmill. So it's an anti-gravity treadmill. Coolest name ever. I had to put on a pair of little, like, it was like a rubber tutu with shorts attached, and you zipped me in and then lifted me up so I couldn't feel as much of my body weight. It felt like, I mean, as I say, it felt like walking on the moon, but I haven't walked on the moon, so it felt like how I would imagine walking on the moon feels, which is cool. I guess the idea is to uh, prevent, so you can like cardiovascular train without. Well, the idea behind that is it's changing the way your weight is distributed, changing the impact on your knees, for example, on your ankles, on your hips, all the lower body. Why? Because when you run, most of the time it's just the impact, right? Yeah. Your feet doing this, that's where you get tired, you get under injuries like ACLs and all those things, uh, arthritis and everything. So what we do with that is reducing that weight. So in your case, we had you at about 45% of your body weight. Yeah, which felt cool. Yeah. Yeah. And if you go into the moon, well, I mean, I've never been on the moon either, <laughs> but, uh, you're actually going to be doing a one-sixth of your weight. Wow. Weight. So this so one, the capacity lighter. is like one-fifth. So it's okay. almost like the moon. Right. Then what we did with you is altitude training. Yeah, that, so that was different. I had a face mask. Well, first of all, I ran, uh, I just jogged very yes. slowly mm-hmm. at sea level. Yes. And then you strapped an yes. oxygen mask to yes. my face. You looked then, like the predator. And then it got real. Know, right? <laughs> it got real. Well, what we did with you is uh, we changed the way the oxygen was getting into your, like the input of oxygen, right? All the atmosphere. In your case, we started at 20,000 feet. Which, which is about higher than the Mount Kilimanjaro. Yeah, I noticed I couldn't breathe through my nose. I had to breathe through my mouth. Yes. I don't breathe through my mouth when I run, but I was just like sucking air. <laughs> that, that's a compensation mechanism from your body. And when it does that, you're not going to be taking a good usage of the oxygen. Uh-huh. And that's when you get the Charlie horses and you get all those pains and like, you can't breathe and you get dizzy because you're going to get more CO2 in than oxygen out. Oh, so interesting. That's when you get into an acidosis as well when your body's going to be changing the way the pH is with CO2 more than oxygen. Okay. That's why you get a little DC and a little loopy. Yeah. So then what we did is we had you at 4.9 miles per hour and that as well for a couple of minutes when you start getting a little bit shorter breath. Yep. And then we lowered you to 10,000 feet. Right, which felt measurably easier, which was funny. I was like, oh, thank God, it's there's oxygen thing. in this. It's like they're lifting a big weight off your chest. Totally. Literally. Yeah. And we were also checking your heart rate. Why is that important? Because the heart rate changes as your body is going to be experiencing that. Why? Because he has to compensate. Uh-huh. Since he doesn't have enough oxygen to give away, what is it going to do? It's like a pump. So that pump is going to start faster. 
Yeah. It's going to start pumping more blood outside, which has oxygen, to feed the muscles so you can keep on moving and living. So that's why your heart rate changes. In your case, you didn't change that much. We usually see like between 10, 20 heart rate difference more because uh-huh. it pumps more. Right. And yours, it was like about six or seven? Six or seven, yeah. Oh, that's so good. That's great. That good? It means you're in very <laughs> good shape. That's great. It's, your adaptation is excellent. Now, this is not physiological adaptation what we did because for that, you need a long time. Right. That's one of the theory behind train high, live low. It's about two weeks being there, three weeks being in that area. Uh-huh. This one is more like a mechanical aspect because the lungs are going to start doing this. So they're going to force themselves more. And what I'm doing is they're going to be forcing themselves to be like shrunken uh-huh. more, less, more. Like a little pump uh-huh. in your lungs. So that's a mechanical adaptation. So your heart actually does this too. Uh, so okay. It, so your lungs adapt so your heart doesn't yes. have to. Okay. That's really interesting. That is I didn't very know cool. about I that. I didn't know that's how that worked. Yeah, yeah. It's a little different because people think like when you're doing this one, it's going to last forever. No, this is just. I wish because then I would. <laughs> but just like if you go into the gym, if you continue doing that internally, like continuously, 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 your lungs are going to be easier to adapt. Right. Because when you're that different atmosphere or different levels of altitude, your lungs are going to be like, I did that already. Right. I can do this. No problem. And your brain is going to be thinking it already. It's going to be ready for it, already adapted to that. Mm-hmm. It's easier. Let's think of it as a neuromuscular re-education for your lungs. Right. Cool. Yeah, that was very cool. Um, it'd be tough to train at 20,000 feet. <laughs> no, you will never train at that altitude. Basically, if you have the resources to afford living there and sleeping there, you're going to create uh, more red blood cells, yes. uh, more mitochondria. So that's a physiological adaptation. Okay, now, so that's like the tents that people sleep in. Yes. Gotcha. Right, right, right. Now, if you train constantly at that altitude, your heart rate goes up, but the VO2 is never going at a level where you can improve. Okay, so you wouldn't do it. It's stopping you. It's stopping you from reaching the point. It's a defense mechanism for your body. Right. Okay. That's one of the reasons why we do these testings like that. We do see how the physiological aspects of it, the U2 max and the lactic threshold and everything is, so we can actually adapt the protocols to train. But at the same time, when we're doing this one, we check also the physiological, not the physiological adaptation, but also the mechanical. So you're checking both check marks, both the physiological adaptation or capacity and the mechanical adaptation. Right. So you kill two birds with one stone. We huh? also use the camera uh-huh. to show you. Oh, which you guys did. You caught my hamstring on that one. Yeah. Well, we caught <laughs> the hamstring and we caught so as well. Planks. So far, it looks like that the right gluteus medius is weaker than the left gluteus yes. medius. I believe you. <laughs> my physical therapist also believes you. And that's going to be changing and modifying your stride. Right. The length of your stride and the quality of it. The running economy. So basically, you are using muscle groups that are not made to go straight. So they are made to go side to side. Uh-huh. So what happens is that those muscles are smaller and weaker than the muscles that help you out to go forward. Uh-huh. Right. So if we are able to fix that alignment, you're going to use the quadricep to go forward instead of using the adductors to go forward. Uh-huh. Make sense? I feel like I read this. That you sometimes hit your other leg with yes. your heel exactly. when this is going on, which does happen to me. It happens right there. Or, exactly. Or the opposite, when your legs are coming, actually doing out, or uh-huh. kicking out, uh-huh. like, like they call the girly run. Girly run. <laughs> when you go like this. Uh-huh, out to the sides, so yeah. that's another situation that happens, too. So, I do think girls do that more. I, well, yeah, I've I noticed so. that. Yeah, well, they, they do it more because too, their hips are different shape, right? Yes, yes, yes. yes. The hormones, their hips the are angles. wider, and therefore, if you see the femur is going to come into an angle inside. Like yeah. 
Yes. And that's why females are more prone to having ACL injuries, for example. Oh. I didn't right. know. Did you know I that? did not know that, no. It's called something called a Q angle. Yeah. When the Q angle is too acute or going in, that beach shape is going to be too much. And just what happens if you have something like a spread on a door, for example, if you move the door forward and you have the hinges, what's going to happen to the hinges? They're going to rip them from the wall, right? Uh-huh. So it's the same thing with ACL. The ACL is made to do this. So the knee goes into flexion and extension. So uh-huh. if you're doing one knee is going to be doing opening more in one side versus the other to the side, uh-huh. what's going to happen? It can break easily. I see. That's a good analogy for popular mechanics. <laughs> Right. It's really, it's, oh, it's like, we, you all know how hinges work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Trouble mechanics. Well, thank you guys so much for showing us all these things. This is amazing. Um, it's been very cool. And I want to come back here. I know. I could spend a whole day. <laughs> I feel here. like we could do an entire, like, month of this. But yeah. they probably won't let us. <laughs> well, it depends. No, we can do it. Cool. So if you happen to be in the New York area, check it out. New York Sports Science Lab. It's on Staten Island and has the coolest equipment. The coolest. The coolest. It's time again for your favorite segment, Track Facts. Track Facts. Track Facts. Like track and field. Ooh. Ooh. This is good for the marathon. Yeah. So I have three stories for you guys about crazy running people. So up first, I wanted to figure out what the longest someone had ever run was. And I found this guy named Dean Carnazes. He's an ultra marathoner out in California. And he has set the record. He ran 350 miles. In a row? Straight. What? It took him 80 hours and 44 minutes, and he did not sleep. And this was in 2005. So he's like Forrest Gump. I actually think I've met this guy before. Wait, what? what? I don't know if we can say this on the podcast. I met him at National Geographic when I interned there in like 2014. And yeah, he seemed a little crazy. Does he have... You gotta be a little crazy in the head to do that. Does he have any toenails anymore? You know, I didn't ask about his toenails, (laughs) but I distinctly remember being like, what does this man eat if you run that often? And he had sushi in the cafeteria. I was like, sir, that is not nutritious There's not enough calories. No. Maybe that was like his snack and he like also had breakfast and lunch and like three dinners. Unless I met a different ultra marathoner, but I'm pretty sure it was this guy. Let's say it was Dean Carnazes, and I'm going to give you some more facts about him because that is not the only nutso thing that he's done. He ran a marathon in each of the 50 states in 50 consecutive days. Yes, this is the person I met. Okay, number two. This one I think is more cool than crazy. So I went to school in Boston, Boston College, and our campus is right along the marathon route. And I remember this father and son team ran in 2013 during the marathon that got bombed and then again in 2014. And they're named Dick and Rick Hoyt. And Rick, who is the son, has cerebral palsy and is pushed in a special wheelchair Mm -hmm. by his father. And so like this started in like 97 when Rick wanted to run in a race and his father had never run before, but started training like I think he trained with like a wheelbarrow with like a sack of concrete in it. And they become really good. So 2014, I think, was their last Boston Marathon, and that was their 32nd one. The 32nd wow. that they've run together. Wow. Yeah, and they've done like over a thousand other endurance events, including 72 total marathons and seven Ironmans. Wow. Ironmans, good yeah. lord. That's yeah. cool. Wow. That's yeah. very cool. Wild. Yeah, so yeah. they're, I mean, they're awesome. I remember they came and gave a talk at BC, and then 2013, they actually unveiled like a statue of them at the starting oh, line. Oh, that's so that's cute. Really cool. Do we have time for a last? We sure do. Fact? Okay, great. So during the 1968 Olympic Games, this runner from Kenya named Kipchoge Kino, I think I'm probably butchering that, but he was diagnosed with gallstones. 
but insisted on running the 10,000 meter race anyway. And he got to the point where he only had two laps left and then had to leave the track because he was in so much pain, but then got up and finished the laps anyway. And then it ended up being disqualified because he had left the track. I guess that's the rule. But then four days later, he rallies and runs the 5,000 meter. Like he's not recovered yet from his gallstones. Only missed gold by two tenths of a second. So like was two and great. And then he had another race, which is the 1500 meter race. And he had to take a bus to the stadium. It was in Mexico City that year. And the bus got stuck in traffic. So he got off the bus and ran to the stadium and then ran the 1500 meter race and won. What? Not only did he win, he won by a margin of 20 meters, which was like the biggest margin that race had ever wow. been won by. What? Ever. That is insane. Did he live? <laughs> yeah. No, he's, okay, so this is the code of the story, which is actually a little sad. Like he just turned himself into the police for like Olympic embezzling. Oh, wow. Embezzling? Apparently there was a scandal in the Rio games in 2016 where the Kenya team was like misappropriating money. And so he's accused of giving his son 25 grand of Team Kenya's money. Hmm. You know, extreme athletic feats, they do not mean you're above the law. They do not. They do not mean that. But maybe you should be. Do that. (laughs) You're like, like, he should definitely be allowed like one gimme. You're like, I mean, like he did it with gallstones. It's true. That's true. And he ran from the bus. He ran from the bus. So those are track facts. That's been track facts. So we've talked about running a lot on this podcast, and I think it's about time to talk about biking, especially because James Lynch happens to be in the office today, and I don't have to call you on a phone from Vermont. Yeah, it's great to be here. And Eleanor's here as well. I've ridden a bike before. Eleanor's ridden a bike before. I don't believe it. Demand she rides a bike. <laughs> I have the photos. <laughs> so you were talking to me back at my desk, and you were telling me all about the many bike adventures you've been on recently, all of which sounded interesting. Let's maybe start with the cyclocross. Yeah. Which, what is cyclocross to start? Yeah, great. Cyclocross is this really cool event. When you look at it, it looks like people riding road bikes where they have no business riding road bikes. I think of the dropped handlebars with like... They look like the big, you know, horn sheep kind of thing. They, right. they hook on Ram's under. head or whatever they call it. Yeah. And yeah. you got the geometry is pretty aggressive. So you're over top. You're kind of hunched over. You look fast. But then you're riding over grass and dirt and mulch. And someone built a staircase there. And there's like a couple of two by fours lying across the road. It's like, what happened? And it's like a big cycling thing. But, you know, road racing is so fast. And if you crash, like that's pretty scary. You're just like on roads. And if you're training on a road bike, there are cars there. And so it's actually really nice to try to bike quickly and with other people, but not have any worries about getting hit by a car, basically. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so the barriers just make it more fun because depending on your skill level, you can approach a different way. So if there's a barrier going across, let's say a foot high, just two inches wide board of wood, right? So you hop off the bike, you throw it over your shoulder, you jump over the barrier, that you seems jump crazy. back on your bike. Yeah, it's really cool. But then like the really good people are just like, boom, bunny hopping the barriers. Okay. They don't even get off their bike. Okay. But like, I'm not the strongest cyclist, but I'm pretty quick on and off the bike. So I, I was catching up a lot with people when they were getting off their bikes and they would be like carefully stepping off and I would just recklessly barrel through it. And then it's like kind of get on the bike on their side and pedal off. And how did you get involved in this? What are the circumstances? Like, is this a sport that you're getting into or what? Yeah, I mean, the cycling world's been expanding. Like, I know you did the story on gravel grinding a while ago. That was really fun. Yeah. Yeah. And I just got into it because I have a couple friends who are really into cycling. And my uh, one buddy was like, you got to do this, man. I know you like riding bikes and riding bikes quickly. Like, this is a fun way to do it competitively. But the risks are super low. Like, worst case scenario, you eat it and hit dirt 
or right. grass. You're not you know? going to like get knocked off the highway by a semi. Right. And right. you're not on roads either. And you're using knobby tires on your bikes. So your top speeds are lower too. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. you feel fast. You feel really competitive. It is exhausting. It seems because like it would be exhausting. Like pedaling through grass makes such a difference over just even packed dirt. So right. you're, you're just working so hard. But it's so much fun. So your guy's next to you. And then the parking lot, you're crushing beers afterwards. Okay, so this is cyclocross that you've gotten into. Mm-hmm. You also rode a road bike down a mountain. Is that accurate? Yeah, uh, up. <laughs> I just like what? Oh yeah, what up. Is, what the is, up, your, what the is your life, James? I don't understand. <laughs> Basically, I'm down to do anything and have little concern for the well-being of my body. So whatever, <laughs> I'll try. So a bunch of my friends came up with cyclocross bikes. So again, knobby, a little bit thicker tires. You're a little bit more upright. Your brakes are probably a little bit better, something like that. And they want to do this 20-mile path around a town in Vermont. And it's all dirt. It's like a running trail. I didn't have one of those bikes at this point, so I just had my road bike. I was like, all right, let's go for it. And one of my friends had said, it's 2018. Bikes are way more capable than you expect they are. I was riding a Canyon Endurace. It's a carbon fiber bicycle, but it's made for, like, rough roads, but not made for dirt. And there are, like, big chunks of gravel and slate and just, like, granite we were riding over. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was awesome. This bike handled so well. I mean, the fun part about that is that you're going at like two miles an hour. So it's a lot more like looking at your handlebars and like picking up your front tire over a route. And then I'm riding on slick tires. So if I was trying to go up anything and I like stood up, my wheel would just spin. So I had to like sit back on the seat and go up. But I mean, it really, it's incredible what a bike is capable of. Like a road bike on a really, you'd be comfortable there on a mountain bike was totally fine. And you also said you wanted to talk about Strava. I love Strava. I do. Yeah, tell me what you think of Strava. Strava is a great app. And basically what it does is it, you have your phone on you or you can have like a Strava enabled watch or something. And it's just like a GPS tracker of your runs, your rides, or your swims. This is where you went. This is how fast you want on average. Here's your feet of elevation. What Strava is cool is it's sort of a social media a little bit. You can like have your friends. You can check in on their rides and runs. Mm-hmm. But the really cool part is that you can go online and set up a segment. So let's say you live on your street and you know the last half mile to my house on my run is this uphill section. I want to know how fast I run that section every day. So you make this little thing a section. Then when you run it, it tells you your time for like the whole run. And you can look through all these different little segments and see how fast you're oh, in that that's segment. Cool. Oh, that is cool. But then this is where it's so like. But I, then. There's more. There's way more. I ran track in college. I'm like a pretty competitive person. But I had a hard time getting motivated to go on a bike ride by myself. I want to be like with someone else feeling competitive. Or if you've been on a team before, it's way easier to make yourself work hard if you're surrounded by people. Right. Yeah. What Strava does is you can look at those segments. And it lets you know where you fall in to everyone who's ever biked or run through that section. So it's like you are the number four person today, the number 40th person all time, the number 12 person in your age group. And so then it tells you also your PRs and it'll show you where your friends are. So like I was doing this and it makes it really easy to go on a bike ride by myself and like really push a lot harder because you feel like you're competing. Yeah. It's like I want want this fast time. uh And so it really took me from kind of casual biker do I feel like I'm a cyclist now because uh-huh. I'm going out there with like something in mind mm. I'm getting and so there was a section I just flipped through and I noticed there was a section in Burlington there's a section that I was like higher up on this one section than I was on anything else I'd seen like maybe all the other sections of my rides was coming in and like the 30th person who'd ever done it then and this one I was at like 11 and I was like okay well I'm gonna do a whole bike ride that's gonna be 20 miles long because it takes a while to get out there but the whole purpose of this ride is I'm gonna ride this quarter mile section as fast as I possibly can (laughs) 
So you ride out there. That's a James thing to do. That sounds like a James Lynch thing to do. But so you ride out there and you're just cruising and like, I know what I'm going out there for. I'm motivated. I'm not going to turn around because I'm going there for this section. I'm like warming up, practicing, doing sprints and stuff and like getting the legs moving. And then it comes time for it and I am just pedaling as hard as I freaking can and like huffing and puffing and like heavy breathing all that I just look sweaty and weird and I'm in all the cycling gear so I look like a nerd to everyone else but like whatever but you know what I did it I got the fastest time ever on that number section one? of the road number one wow and they give you a little crown and all your friends can see you have a crown it's like <laughs> that's what's up are you willing to put the name of the section oh, out I will. there I will it is Let's the elevated it. bike path sprint in Burlington Vermont that's headed uphill it's .3 miles and my time was 102 which was James a, two seconds. Need to look at his phone for any. No, he just, he that just pulled that straight, straight from memory. Oh, I, oh, yeah. It's like a one percent incline or something like that. Nothing and we, too steep. we dare you all to beat him. If Come you and take live it. in Vermont, Come and take, it. take it from him, please. Because the other thing is, <laughs> please. These guys know what they're doing. Strava emails you if someone beats your PR. Oh my <laughs> god! So they're like, get out there and get it back. Wow, that's savvy. That is savvy. It really is an awesome app. If you're a casual runner or cyclist, it's so much fun. It's like this is the fast. I've ever done that section myself. So it'll tell you your own personal best for all that stuff. It's right. really cool. Nice. Well, maybe I'll try it. You should. Great. 100% should. Cool. Okay, so Kevin and I are drinking beer right now. This beer was uh, given to us by a publicist who knew that I was running the marathon and that we have some exercise people here. It's called Sufferfest Beer Company is the name of the company. And there are two different beers that are actually supposed to be recovery beers for post-exercise. We also had some water, and I think you had a banana also. I had a banana, It's not like like the only thing we're having. I can get behind the recovery beer. So, okay, you have the Kolsch. Yeah, tell me what you have. Yeah, so mine's called Repeat, and it's Kolsch-style beer with bee pollen. If you're familiar with Kolsch-style, it's like that, but it's pretty light. It's pretty crisp, which I like. It's only 3.5% alcohol, and it says 95 calories, which I can see how that's a recovery beer because you're not going to feel guilty for, like, replacing all the calories you just that burned. You burned right? Yeah, it's pretty good. So the one I have is the FKT, stands for Fastest Known Time, which is pale ale brewed with black currant. It's 5.5% alcohol, so it's still pretty low, but not as low as yours. And it has, let's see, mine has 165 calories, but it also has sodium. So it has a little bit of salt in it, which I kind of like. Yeah, it's very tasty. This is vegan and gluten-free also. Are they all that? Um, I think these two are both gluten-free. They also have a number of other beers. There are Sufferfest beers, but they're not necessarily for training for or recovery. Or they, you know, These two, they say they have beer with benefits. These other ones, they've got Shakeout, Taper, and Flyby. Flyby is a Pilsner. We have all of them here in the office and have been drinking them. They're all pretty good, actually. Mm-hmm. The Pilsner is 5.1 ABV. It has a little bit of gluten in it. Pure gluten-free kind of person. Shakeout is a blonde. It has 5.7 ABV. And then taper is clearly, it's, you're supposed to drink it when you're tapering, which I currently am for the marathon. Yeah, why Because I did just exercise, you know. What do you think is the best type of beer for recovery beer? I think anything that has a lot of malt in it would be good for me. That's what I think. So these are pretty cheap. I'm looking at their website right now, and it's like $1.99 or $2.99 a can. But that's not how anyone buys things. They come in six packs. But I mean, if something's $1.99 a can, that's what, a $12 six pack. So you get the idea of how much this costs. The way we end testing table always is, would you buy this? Yeah, definitely. I think I could actually almost drink this one in the summer. Mm-hmm. After running, it's just so crisp and light. I feel like I might maybe prefer that one after a run when it's cold out. But yeah, this, um, but yeah, I like it. This one has a little bit of like a fruitiness to it. And it's got like a good number of calories. And I like the idea that there's salt in it because I feel like 
The other thing about drinking beer after running is I'm always like, am I screwing up my electrolyte balance? I don't know. I mean, I wish there was maybe potassium in it, but I would still buy it. I would definitely buy it. Yeah. It's good. Cool. Cheers. Cheers. That's our show, y'all. The Most Useful Podcast Ever is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Brandcasters, Inc. at www.brandcastingu.com. We'd like to thank Bettina Warshaw and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes. And while you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And if you want to read more about life hacks, projects, science, and technology, check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening.